to be totally honest with you, in that type of an environment, you have to work as a collective. Because as soon as you start to work as an individual, you are decreasing your chances of survival significantly. All right, guys, welcome to the Bluemix podcast. Uh, major announcement, we have a new sponsor, Tornet. Shout out to Dixant, um, who came on our 14th episode of the podcast. He loved what we're doing so much that he wanted to show his support. Um, Tornet is a great team for anyone looking to outsource their technology to, by the way. Um, they work with a lot of startups. They work with a lot of full-form companies, organizations, uh, universities. So done, I've seen them do a lot of great work. Um, so this is how they describe themselves. Tornet is a team of technology priests operating across two continents who preach the power of technology to make a meaningful difference in their customers' ecosystem. They're a powerhouse of technology enthusiasts who believe that business value chains can be improved with the help of technology solutions. So if you're looking for any kind of solution to get built out, any technology solution, definitely reach out to Tornet. Uh, they're a great team. All right, Sajid, thank you for coming on the Bluemix podcast. Um, this is exciting, man. So you're here to represent Jelly Social. Yeah, that's right. right. Which is like a, almost like a social, literally a physical social network kind of platform, Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. Let's, let's dive right into that. So Jelly Social, what is it? So Jelly Social is actually a uh, peer-to-peer support community for anyone working on their passion project. So the community is actually about 3,500 people. And uh, what that means is if you happen to be working on a passion project, so let's say you're, you're creating podcasts, or you're working on an app, or you're building a business, or you're, you're writing a book, whatever it may be, whatever your passion project is, uh, you can tap into this community of about 3,500 people. And uh, these people are going to challenge you to set ambitious goals. They're going to support you in achieving those goals so that you can actually walk away with uh, with this passion project of yours coming to life. So what we do is uh, we we have certain times, um, certain uh, events that we hold, uh, mainly in the West End, where we just invite people to come together, people who are working on the passion projects. Just come together in one space at one time, and uh, let's get these people kind of mingling together. Let's get them uh, uh, just kind of speaking with one another, connecting with one another, mm-hmm. and finding out how they can support each other to bring their passions to life. So that's really what Jelly Social is all about. Yeah. Awesome. So I mean, where did that come from? Like, uh, wh- where did this need to connect people to other people? Okay, so uh, it, it happened really organically. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're based in the West End, uh, specifically Mississauga. And uh, the way we started was that uh, myself as an entrepreneur and uh, my co-founder, Amanda, who's also an entrepreneur, um, both uh, running our businesses in the West End. And uh, we look around ourselves and we see that there's no real uh, support community of entrepreneurs, which uh, is is really a hindrance because if we're trying to advance our business, we need to bounce ideas off uh, other entrepreneurs, get support from other entrepreneurs, and see how we can build ourselves uh, with that support. So what we found ourselves doing was, uh, because that, Missis- uh, that the community was devoid in Mississauga, we found ourselves going to Toronto, we found ourselves going to Waterloo mm. to get access to those types of entrepreneur communities. Yeah. And uh, after Wait, a while, we wh- just What time period was this? Like, Oh, uh, 2016. 2016, okay. Yeah. So um, uh, after doing that for a while, we just thought, you know, this, this is ridiculous. We know there's entrepreneurs in Mississauga. Like, we can see them in coffee shops. We know they're working from home, and uh, we know they exist. We know there's an entrepreneurial... Uh, entrepreneurship in Mississauga, but just how do we start to bring people together so that we can actually, uh, you know, support one another and leverage leverage each other's skills and resources? So literally, the way that Jelly Social started was just myself and Amanda calling other entrepreneurs in our immediate network who are also based in Mississauga and just asking them, "Hey, do you want to get together in a coffee shop once a month?" And uh, and really, that's how we started. So in the beginning. Um, we were just holding these things in coffee shops, maybe five people coming out. Um, but from day one, we had a very specific model that we were using uh, at these very casual get-togethers. So for instance, if you imagine, you know, we're sitting in a coffee shop, let's say there's a table here and there's five of us around the table. What we would do is uh, I would get everyone just to kind of stand up, talk a bit about themselves, talk about their passion project, and talk about what they need help with to how it can make that passion project a reality. And every time uh, we went through that process, especially when we had the, uh, the open ask for help, uh, as soon as I put that out there, 
everyone at the table would just kind of say, hey, you know what, I can help you with, with this, I can help you with that, I can set, lend you a resource, whatever it may be. It was just really this uh, unvoluntary response from other people in the, around the room or in, uh, around the table who just really legitimately wanted to help other people uh, you know, bring their passion to life. So for instance, if we're at this table and let's say I have no idea how to market my business on TikTok, then uh, you know, I, I'm going to put that out there and maybe you can lend me a resource. Maybe you can actually mm -hmm. show me what you're doing on TikTok, whatever it may be. And even things like that, like even these, these small actions, if you add it up at the right time and applied in the right way, it can make a world of a difference for someone who's just trying to get their, their project going. Absolutely. So that's how we started. And um, we were getting a uh, people were getting a lot of good value out of it. Uh, we can see that from, from the beginning. So we started telling people that, you know, this looks like this model seems to be working. Uh, if you're getting good value out of it, why don't you go tell other entrepreneurs in Mississauga uh, about what we're doing here and invite them out to the next uh, monthly gathering. So really, organically, slowly, that's how it started to grow. And even back then, it didn't have a name. Jelly Socials didn't have a name back then. But it was just this thing that people were getting together at once a month, at, again, a set time, a set place. Mm -hmm. They come together, and uh, they support one another. So um, fast forward to today, and we're still doing those monthly events. But now, instead of five people coming out, we're getting 40, 50, 60 people coming out. And the model still holds true. People are still going out there talking about their passion and purpose, talking about what they need help with, and people are, again, are just banding around these people, putting themselves out there, and, uh, and lending support however they can. And uh, on top of that, we've also expanded beyond Mississauga. So uh, we're now running these Jelly Social events um, in Mississauga, in Brampton, in Oakville, in Etobicoke, and occasionally downtown Toronto. And uh, we're looking at uh, other opportunities that we can kind of expand the concept throughout the GTA. So that's really where we came from. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and you talk really about like, how you developed here, but yeah. why? I mean, was it a project that ah. you tried to develop where like, you couldn't find the right people to come up? Like, where did that pain point? Like, wh yeah. why, why, why connect people? Like, OK, so uh, it actually gets a lot deeper than this. OK, <laughs> so, let's get to it. Man. Yeah, OK. So um, Jelly Social is really a, uh, a social experiment. At its heart, it's a social experiment. Mm. And the social experiment is really rooted in um, a lot of my philosophical beliefs. And uh, I guess that to give you the background on that, um, so I'm, I'm born and raised in Canada. Uh, but from a very young age, uh, and, and I'm really thankful that my parents did this, from a very young age, uh, every year, every two years, I'd go back to India. And just for a visit, whatever it may be. But when I go back to India, uh, I would specifically stay in my mom's village, which is like you know going back 200 years. The way that people are operating in that village mm. is the way they were operating 200 years ago. Meaning, uh, the technologies were there uh, as the, as they were 200 years ago. The way people are interacting with one another, it, it's it's kind of preserved in that pristine way. So time from capsule. A, it's a time capsule, 100% time capsule. So I'd go there. And again, from a very young age, I, I, I noticed just this very uh, different way of going about things in this village compared to the way we go about things here in North America. And one of the big takeaways I found in that village in India, again, is that it's just how everybody bands around each other to support one another. Yep. It's almost like there's this invisible network that connects everybody in the village, whether you're family or not, yep. as soon as, even if you're just passing through the village, you are absorbed in those invisible connections that bind everybody together. And as a result of those connections, it doesn't almost think of it like a, like a network, like, a, like a, a connected network. If somebody on one end of the network is suffering or they have a lack of food or they lack something, somehow that's going to spread to everyone else in the village and they're going to come rushing to their aid. So everybody is, uh, is living in this, in this sphere, in this bubble, in this time capsule where they're all supporting one another, again, willingly, involuntarily. Is it actually supportive? Like, I mean, a lot of these kind of environments kind of inspire a lot of, like, like nah, jealousy or, you know, this kind of thing that's like, it becomes just like gossip. People actually, actually help each other? That's kind of interesting. So this village, I've seen other villages as well. This one, is, there's something different about this one. Okay. Where, again, everybody is just there. They're in it to support one another. Um, the end result of all this is that no one's super rich. And no one's super poor either. Everyone's somewhere in the middle. And I think because everyone's somewhere in the middle, 
there's no real room for jealousy or like people like if a family that intermarried and they're all kind of like related to each other one way or another like it's, like, it's gone that way half yeah. the village is related to everybody else yeah. somehow yeah um, so it's been a it's been there for a long time so yeah. people there are kind of like kind of blended in together yeah um yeah so it, it's interesting have you ever read the bo a book by howard bloom called a global mind he no. talks about this kind of phenomenon where like how people in groups become like a almost like a hive mm -hmm. right and especially when like these kind of older societies exist where people the more kinship people have the closer they become formed yeah. So they're not individual brains now going out in the world. Like now we live in a city, like we are now individuals kind of trying to go about our own lives and yeah. all this. But when you go to these kind of environments like you described, you're almost like a group mentality. Yeah. Like the East definitely has that, right? Yeah. Where you kind of form together into the, almost like a support system for each other. Yeah. Where it's multiple brains, multiple eyes, multiple hands and legs all kind of working to help yes. support the bigger whole. That's 100% it. And yeah. I think there's a reason why we see these a little bit more prevalent uh, in the villages, particularly that village I, I used to visit. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why is that everyone is ba banding around a common goal. And that goal uh, is really just a matter of survival. To be totally honest with you, in that type of an environment, you have to work as a collective. Because as soon as you start to work as an individual, you are decreasing your chances of survival significantly. And in order for you to survive in that environment, you have to adopt this open, connective, collective mentality and as a result, you derive all the benefits from that collective. Mm -hmm. So th they're banding around this common goal. And as a result, everybody's thriving, everybody's happy, and everyone's relatively equal. So when I saw that, and uh, I saw these people really banding around this commonality, I thought that this is something that really North America could, could how, how definitely recreate, benefit from. How do we recreate it here? How do you recreate it here? So that's where Jelly Social came about. Because mm -hmm. Jelly Social, in, in its essence, is a village that is transplanted into the city, a pop-up village in the city. And all it is, 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 is giving people this reason to connect, this overarching goal, this, this commonality. And that commonality happens to be our passion, our passion projects. As soon as everyone, anyone walks into a Jelly Social event, we're creating this time and space where everyone is there working together to support each other with their passion projects. And that is that is sufficient uh, commonality that gets people working together, just like people work together in that village in India. So that's really the whole basis behind Jolly Social. That's really cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, how's that been? Like, what's hmm. the feedback been? So it's been interesting. So like I said, um, this is purely uh, a social experiment that has progressed uh, over the years. Yeah. And there have been a ton of pivots. There have been a ton of learnings. Uh, as a result as well. So um, I'm, I'm actually a human-centered design practitioner. Okay. The whole inspiration, ideation, implementation, I'm, I'm like fully into that. I've used it in the engineering industry, in the business industry, and uh, and nonprofit. So I've, I've used it in so many different ways and uh, it, for so many different purposes. Uh, and so when we built Jelly Social, it was all about, you know, how do we, you know, of course that's gonna be ingrained in the, in the process that we're using. So, as a social experiment, we had this vague idea of what it is that we wanted to create. We didn't really know how exactly that it was going to manifest itself. Mm -hmm. So we just thought, we have this rough idea, let's put it out there, and let's see if it's hitting the right notes. Let's collect the data, let's see the impact, and let's see if it's something that could potentially be nurtured further. So um, in the beginning, as I was talking about, uh, you know, th this was mainly an entrepreneurship initiative, um, very much about uh, you know, connecting other entrepreneurs in, the, in Mississauga. Um, over the years, what we started to see was that um, uh, because we're, we're really hitting on the passion project notes, uh, that actually has a broader appeal. It isn't, it's not necessarily entrepreneurs. Mm. We found that at our events, there's probably just as many entrepreneurs and students who are coming out. And again, they have their own passion projects. Maybe it's a side project. Maybe it's not a full-out business just yet. Maybe it's an idea. But everybody has that commonality in terms of a passion project that they want to pursue. So. Um, we, that's where we kind of shifted things from the beginning to where we are now, was that it's, it, it became less of a purely entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneur initiative and startup initiative to something that's more about nurturing that, that passion project. And um, uh, we started, kind of the reason why we, we, we pivoted in that direction was that uh, we started getting, um, uh, doing some research on uh, Google's whole approach to this whole 20% of your time being you know, based on a passion project. And we saw that they were getting, obviously, some great results out of it. And uh, just in terms of employee skill building, motivation, and things of that nature, and actually real good innovations happening as a result. 
So we thought, uh, you know, if, if it works for Google, why can't it work for us as well? So that's when we started to shift from entrepreneurship to passion project. And right, that so ended up being a pretty good So pivot. just to uh, cover that, yeah. so in, within Google, they were doing, they figured out their employees spent 20% 20, 20 of time on passion projects. Yeah. So like this empowered them to do that? Yeah, so, okay. uh, yeah, so uh, I'll explain a bit. It's that, um, yeah, Google introduced this initiative, company-wide initiative, that, um, um, you know, you, you do your job function, you, you, you spend 80% of your time on that, but make sure you spend 20% of your time on anything that, uh, that you're passionate about. Is this working hours? Work working hours, 20% mm -hmm. of your working hours on anything you're passionate about. And uh, Google will give you this community of supporters, they'll give you these resources, uh, so that you can actually deliver on that passion project of yours. And what they found as a result of this was that uh, employees were not only creating this massive innovations that spread throughout the company, but uh, they're also highly motivated, and they're actually um, developing their own skill sets. So it's kind of an inquiry-based learning where they're setting their own goals based on their own passion project, and they're, they're filling in the gaps in their skills and capabilities so that they can ultimately achieve that. Yeah. So we thought, hey, that, that's great. It works for Google, and then you know, it, it can work for us too. And we're actually seeing you know, that, that, that commonality, again, between the Jelly Social community and what Google was doing. They just happened to be doing it internally. So we just thought, hey, let, let's take the same concept and let's apply it uh, externally to other people who, uh, who may be working on their own businesses, they may be entrepreneurs, or they may be working at other companies, they may be entrepreneurs, or they may be students. So let's, let's uh, implement that process, uh, find it within Jelly Social, and make it available to you know, a broader audience. Absolutely, and yeah. I mean, but one of the main taking pieces, uh, uh, sorry, the um, takeaways, right, from that is like from Google experience is that like a lot of their key core uh, functions of their business, like Google Plus, yeah, uh, launched because of two engineers saw the need for like a network within uh, within uh, Google that can interact with other people as well, yeah, right. So they first they built the network for Google employees to communicate yeah. each other, and they're like, oh, why can't we expand this to other people? People can share ideas. Kind of like an alternative to to, uh, to to Facebook, but that can help communicate better to actual Google products and services. Yeah, and it, it became such a uh, it, it was became a passion project that became an actual huge tenant of the company, yeah. the main driver of the company. Google's hard focus at at the at its time, at the prime of the project, to integrate all its core services through Google Plus to be yeah. like a social network for interacting with Google. It ended up becoming uh, becoming the success that they wanted to. Yeah. But in Latin America, it's huge. Yeah, uh, they actually spun the program out into it called something else, and it's actually the, the second or third biggest network, global network, uh, like a social network in Latin America. Yeah, and became a driving uh, success in that aspect. It didn't become a global success, but it became yeah. a, a, for a smaller community, and because because two engineers were empowered yeah. through this program to uh, innovate, just to work yeah. on new things. Right. I'll give you another example from Google. Yeah. Gmail was actually one of oh, those projects. Yeah. yeah. So you never know, you know what I mean? And uh, like, at the end of the day, if, uh, if the project is a wild success or not, isn't necessarily the point. Um, especially when in the context of, of uh, Jelly Social. It's the journey that you take to get there that's probably more valuable. Mm -hmm. Because whatever your passion project may be, whatever your goal may be, um, the journey that you're gonna take to get there is gonna require as many, connecting with as many people as possible and it's also going to require you developing your own skills um, and self-initiating that skill development. And along the way, that's, that's where you're getting the, ton, uh, the greatest value. If at the end of the day you're hitting all your goals and this project becomes this multi-billion dollar success, great. But uh, the, the whole point of this thing is develop those passion projects mm. and do it as often as you can uh, just for the sole purpose of establishing those connections and building up those skills. And if you do this enough, Eventually, you may hit that project that's gonna, you know, take you to new heights. Yeah, you know? this is the thing that really fascinates me because, yeah. like, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, all these co big companies, especially the tech companies, understand the driving force between between embracing the, uh, the creative potential of individuals. Essentially, it's like go solve these small problems that, but like, we'll train you on how to make it, like, expand, right? Like, how how to find how to create a mechanism that can fulfill the problems in scale. Yeah. AKA a completely new department, yeah. a new product, a new service, a, 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 a completely new line of business. Yeah. Um, and, it, and like by giving you not just empowerment, but the resources, yeah. right? 20% of not just your working hours, but your income, yeah. 
right? The, the access to the infrastructure that the, these huge offices environment have, all that towards whatever you want to do. Yeah. Let's go solve these kind of problems. Yep. That's a wicked way of like diversifying and um, just like uh, solve multiple problems yeah. right, and figure out what works. Yep. And there's huge financial rewards for an organization to do that. Yeah. Because they might have now hundreds of new ideas develop, like it's tested, fuel tested, the people who really believe in solving them champion those projects yeah. and helping them grow, and they can, they can pick and choose as they work, as things function and work, what to focus their attention on, yeah. develop new products and certain strategies uh, very cheaply. Yeah. Come look at a think tank or innovation factory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah. I mean, you, you said it, nailed it right, right away. Like these companies profit from this kind of mechanism. Yeah. So there is a, ten, a lot of um, like that kind of proves that there's a great there's a great potential for this kind of thing can be applied in a wide network. Yeah. Right. And the other thing too is that like um, what this really hits on is collective wisdom, collective intelligence. Um, for instance, you know, that doesn't, I don't know how many people are in this room, but it's the, you know, if, I, if I were to ask you to pick out the smartest person in the room, you know, who would that be? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 100% um, Kasem. Okay. Yeah, right. I have another answer for you. <laughs> Smartest yeah. person in this room is all of us put together. There you go. Right? Okay. So if we can find a way, a consistent mechanism, yeah. to be able to uh, combine our wisdom together, mm. combine our, uh, our intelligence together, mm -hmm. then we are collectively genius and we can collectively solve any problem. Mm -hmm. So just the way that uh, you know, some companies are going about that, and uh, Google, of course, is, is a huge innovator in this whole, this whole process. But being able to get their employees to band around this type of thing and tap into that collective wisdom, they're doing great things as a result. Yeah. So we're looking at things like that for, for Jelly Social and just trying to see, like we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here, but to be totally honest with you, all the answers are already out there. Mm -hmm. We're just seeing things that are, are, that are working and being applied in this, these other contexts and seeing how we can bring it towards the context of you know, establishing community and bringing communities together. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is something that really fascinates me, yeah. right? The, uh, the uh, ability to bring things together, right? Yeah. Like the idea of like a super organism kind yeah. of forming. Yeah, that's it. Where like you're, folk, uh, you're combined together with a vision, with a purpose, with a mission, the more like, you know, you become almost unstoppable. A group yeah. becomes, the type of focus becomes very, very powerful, yeah. right? Especially a small and mobile group. And if you have multiple small mobile groups that yeah. are functioning in a system, they can be very motivated in solving the kind of problems that need to be solved. That's right. That's right. Um, but then when you have these large masses that come together, they can create even bigger kind of values, maybe in a smaller way. Yep. Um, it's a really fascinating thought. Yeah. I mean, and the way technology is kind of interfacing and allowing people to kind of come together, it's really fascinating. Uh, have you, have you follow, I've been following that kind of trend, like the actual way of like, like small things like this whole like super cults, like the idea yeah. of like, you know, the keto diet, the, the veganism, hunters now, right? Uh, like the whole battles they have in these social networks between what's right, what's wrong, yeah. now becomes blurred. Yeah. Right? Like if you've been following like one of Twitter and YouTube's and these huge social platforms, biggest problems is to filter out what is hate speech, what is negative, what is positive. Mm. Um, like key example for that would be like, you know, vegans come or vegans or environmental environmentalists will come in and be like, you know, like hunting animals is wrong. Mm -hmm. gotta stop that. Stop any kind of speech or any kind of messaging that promotes this because they consider that hate speech. Yeah. But the hunters come along and, you know, or like people who live off the land come along and be like, no, this is a way of life. This is a way of connecting with community. We actually respect the environment by doing this. Mm. Why are you blocking your right of access? Yeah. And now these huge networks are now kind of stuck yeah. in this kind of point of view where like, these massive groups of people are coming, are being separated, mostly because of these algorithms, right? Yeah. That are creating these filter bubbles. Yeah. People connect with other people who believe the same things they do, click yeah. the same things they do. And uh, lately, I mean, Facebook under a lot of fire for this now is creating these kind of algorithms where it makes people enraged. Yeah. That, that kind of rage creates more engagement. Yeah. yeah rage more, clicks, yeah. More people yeah. to interact with content, right? Actually write, uh, write common stuff and you get enraged. Yeah. So these filter bubbles combined with these like rage mechanisms yeah. are creating di mass divisions in society. Yeah, um, yeah, hundred percent agree. So um, okay, okay, I don't want this to get so deep, but yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So I think one of uh, I'll bring it back to that example again of uh, me going to the village mm -hmm. and getting this whole perspective of the village, and me being born and raised in North America and getting this perspective of North America. The biggest difference is that uh, the village promotes unity and cooperation, whereas North America, I feel, 
promotes separation. That is baked into our, or the way that we operate Absolutely. in North America. Yeah. I think it's baked into our political system, our economic system, and our social, social system. It's that the more you separate in North America, the more you are rewarded, so to speak. There, there, are, there are tangible rewards for being separate. And as a result, everybody consciously or unconsciously goes about their lives in that separation mentality. And the result of that separation is that um, you're getting these very distinct groups who are almost clinging on to these beliefs, um, these, these beliefs that they feel are key to their own survival, their own being, their own ego. And any time that any of those beliefs mm -hmm. happen to be um, punctured in a way, then the reaction is always a very negative, aggressive uh, response. Mm. Uh, whereas in the village, what I have seen with my own eyes, I have seen disagreements there. It's not like everybody is like happy, lovey-dovey all the time. There are agree uh, disagreements there. But they allow those disagreements to be heard and voiced out and contemplated, not avoided, not, not like clung onto in any particular way. Just have it put out there and, uh, and discuss it as a village. Openly accept it, uh, understand that this is a concern that people have, and figure out a way to reconcile. So that's that whole reconciliation mentality that is very prominent over there. And again, here it's almost the opposite. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can see like, you know, the fact that um, you know, Facebook, like, as you mentioned, has a specific example, how they would play up on that and how it just makes the situation even worse. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. yeah. And I think it's, it becomes more and more important, like the idea of like, how do we not just break down the filter bubbles, but like, how do we like, I guess negotiate between the two yeah. disparities. Yeah. Like you said, like now most people now in the Western society now, like you know, the Western versus Eastern mentality is being separate. Is yeah. separate, like you said. But like I'm right, you're wrong. I don't want to hear your argument anymore. Yeah. Like now the modern sentiment has become, I, I filter out what I don't agree with. Yeah. Uh, everyone goes in these kind of filter bubbles where like I don't want to even hear the opposite argument. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, that's become a kind of a thing. It's been a culture shift. And it's because I think mostly these like algorithms now now dictate what are, what the kind of content we kind of consume. Yeah, yeah. And uh, like I mean, we and Henry talked about this a lot. Like, how do we open? How do we create? How do open systems look like? And mm -hmm. one of the exciting things of like the blockchain inspired like decentralized uh, movement is like you know break down these central authorities that kind of form. Like, why does Twitter itself have to be a central authority that decides what is hate speech or not? Yeah. Why can't there be an open forum discussion? Some kind of open, direct democracy that comes yeah. into underlying the underlying uh, what the what the actual policy is, yeah. right? And like these third-party, like I guess, judgments, uh, like um, arbitrators yeah. that decide this, you get kicked off or this is a punishment and all that. Yeah. Because these massive platforms now, if you get deplatformed, everyone will platform you. Like you get kicked off of YouTube, Twitter will ban you, Facebook will ban you. And these are now networks that span billions of people. You're deplatformed. It's like you're being disconnected, right, from a global mind, yeah. right, from this whole network that you now lose track of that thing. And uh, the whole idea is uh, is brought up now that being deplatformed from one of these platforms is almost like a human rights issue. Yeah, because now you lose a voice. Yeah, now you lose a say, and um, that's really interesting. Uh, and technology is like binding us in a ways that never thought never was possible before and i'm kind of excited to see like how people kind of uh, kind of plays out yeah because now people are no longer connected just by nation or ethnicity yeah or religion but have a new way of interacting which is i believe this and you might be somewhere different and you know through this system right location doesn't matter yeah who you are doesn't matter what you are doesn't matter but we believe the same we can come together but the danger of that is that these micro communities or major macro communities that form that are in parallel with each other, yeah. that don't communicate with yeah. each other, right? Yeah, so um, like my personal belief is that no matter how much we separate, there is always a string of commonalities somewhere. Like mm -hmm. we're all human at the end of the day, right? We're all these, these living beings. So as much as we try to separate, uh, we cannot separate that common thread that binds us all. So um, uh, just in our, like our, as part of our social experiment, um, in our small sphere, we're trying to address this. And uh, we feel that like, you know, 
as great as the, the online communities are in terms of the breadth of, uh, of connections we can make and these micro communities that we can form online and all that kind of stuff, that's great. That definitely has its place. But what about the deeper uh, connections? What about the deeper conversations? And what we feel is that uh, you know, if we can somehow strike a balance mm -hmm. between you know, the benefits of the breadth of connections we can create online and the depth of connections we can create in person, striking that balance could go a long way mm -hmm. in allowing reconciliation to happen and allowing people that, to voice their opposing uh, views, but also come together in a place where uh, they have some form of commonality and they can reconcile you know, whatever their beliefs that they have. So as, as great as an online world is, an online world in itself is another form of separation from you know, a purely offline world. Mm -hmm. So having a way that we can bring the two together I think would create a better way of conversation and commonality for the future. You know? No, it's, it's great. I yeah. mean, uh, while you're talking about uh, you know, the, the commonality is that we're all human, yeah. kind of flashed to me. Um, there was a great speech at the UN by um, a former US president, not Kennedy, it was uh, a guy who uh, played in Westerns, he was an actor, um, he became US president afterwards. Forgot his name. Okay. Anyways, at the UN, he talked about, he made this controversial speech where he's like, if only there was an extraterrestrial f force, something that we could uh, all unite us against them, mm. we will all realize that we are one and they are something else. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, there is no, we have not to uh, counter any such force, but we all need to come together. That's, ki that's kind of like the speech yeah. was, but it was kind of weirdly put. This is the president of the United States in the, in the 50s and 60s, and um, he's talking about a potential, the, the idea that maybe an extensional force, extensional threat, yeah. a threat will be the one to bind us all together. Yeah. Um, that really, you know, because humans have this kind of capability that us against them is really yeah. built in our primal structure. Yeah. Right? It's almost like a, it's, it's a survival mechanism. It is, yeah. Right? So people, kinships come together, people form tribes. Uh, this tribal kind of mentality comes where it's like, you know, I feel safe because we believe the same thing, yeah. we look the same. We believe in the same thing. Um, we have shared commonalities. So, and the more commonality you have, the more safer I feel with you. Yeah. You know what? We can form together it's us versus them. Yep. And uh, there's a great TED talk about this, like how, uh, how much of a leader you are is directly correlated to like how many people you consider part of your inner circle, your kin, yeah. your kin to. You know, is it the, f the first form of a leader is come from when you think of your family as your inner circle, your kinship, yeah. right? You think about you know, your direct family, and that's us against the world. You're, everything you do is for this family. Well, then you grow the circle higher, right? It's everyone who, you know, within my village or city or nationality or religion or et cetera, right? People who share some kind of commonality, that kind of becomes a second layer yep. of the leader. Because now your base has grown, right? You have now not you're, you are now trying to speak on behalf of, or act on behalf of, or try to, try to condition the movement of a wider gaze of people. Not just your inner family, but you're acting on behalf of a bigger group. Yep. You're now a like another level of a leader. And, the f and it goes up like this, and the final level becomes all humanity. Yep. Right? Like if you're a leader that speaks for all humanity, looks for the benefit, works for the benefit of all humanity, and you speak a common truth or a common vision that benefits everybody, well, now you are the epitome of leadership. Yep. Because now you're trying to move the entire circle yeah. into a better path. Yeah. Yeah. Better yeah. light. And I mean, how do we do that in a divided world? Yeah. Because I've noticed this a lot, right? Yeah. Like people, like if you ever go out and talk about this openality, right? Like, yeah, we should all bring everyone together. There's always somebody who thinks of why. Mm -hmm. What's in it for me? Mm -hmm. What's in it for my family? You know, like, and uh, even people close to us, like, might even come to us and be like, you know, why don't you just focus on your family? Mm -hmm. Like, ge out of genuine concern, right? If you're focusing on too big of a deal, trying to a task, like, I want to make things better for my city. Mm -hmm. You know, whether, you, you know, unless you're a politician, you're openly fighting like that, you're, you're working in the shadows, and you're trying to, you're chasing this vision, or I want to do better for my country, it's like, yeah. why don't you just focus on your family? Why don't yeah. you focus on things you can control? Yeah. That kind of mentality always comes up. Um, because focusing on a smaller kind of, uh, smaller group, it's safer, it's easier, right? And it makes more sense for a lot more people. Yeah. Like, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so um, I guess my short answer is everybody is insecure and everybody is fearful to some degree. 
that's it's that, that fear that's mentality, a, right? Yeah, it is a fear mentality. Um, that's basically my answer. To that. Yeah, is that I, I've come across people like that too, yeah. and um, uh, I've I've been able to learn compassion mm -hmm. towards or or show compassion to people like that, um, just because I can I've I've been able to develop um, greater empathy towards what they may be going through in their particular life, and. Um, uh, I find that uh, when people are acting out of insecurity and acting out of fear, the natural response is always a response of separation, of building a wall around yourself, protecting what you can protect, because you are fearful and insecure of your ability to deal with anything that's outside of those walls. Mm -hmm. So I find that the people who are able to create a ripple effect, uh, that leadership mentality, where you have positive views that are rippling positively through, throughout the community, it's because I think people are speaking to a truth that is devoid of insecurity and fear. It's a truth that's more in line with compassion and reconciliation. And I think that if you are naturally um, communicating things of that, of that nature, mm -hmm. you will automatically connect with more people in a broader audience as opposed to wanting to separate and build walls around yourself. No, definitely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's really telling of our generation, yeah. like, uh, of our, this time that we're in, where we live in the safest time there is. The least amount of wars, like regardless of what the media wants you to tell, right? Like if you look at the correlation, like the reporting, like not just the media, I'm talking about social media, your access to information, the reporting has gotten, because you have access to information has gone up so much so higher, you get all this information about the world being unsafe or yeah. all these ne negative things happening, but the actual stats is, like if you look at Steven Pinker's work, mm. um, we're the safest time in human history. Yeah. Least amount of disruption in your, in your life, least amount of chance someone's gonna come over from a neighboring village and kill you, right? And take your things, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're more, for the most likely part, you're, the environment you live in is stable. You can plan out decades in advance and, and, see, and, and act on things and have it be empowered to do so. And yet this safety has brought on the most anxious, the most fearful, and the most loneliest mm. pe like, uh, uh, people. Um, and I think like this has become like a social science uh, experiment itself, right? Yeah. Understanding what's going on, it's like everything's actually all the numbers say everything's safer, yep. but people are more fearful than ever. Yeah, we're, we're more connected than ever, yep. and yet we feel lonelier than ever. Yeah, right. We have less to be afraid of, but we're more anxious. Yep. We have all the inf information to make decisions from, but we are we are choiceless. Yep. Um, we're f paralyzed by yeah. it, and. Um, like one of the things I really love about Joe Rogan, he talks about this, right? Is like, it's the sedentary life. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, you're sedentary, like you're physically, you don't do, we, we as humans uh, don't uh, have any physical challenges, but also mental challenges, because you're in a safe environment, you're not constantly bombarded yeah. with these problems, life or death decisions, yep. all these things. Because of that, your, your mentality has raised, the, your psyche has raised the bar on what is danger. Mm -hmm. Right, so now your threshold for danger has gone down. Yep. So when you're sitting at work and your boss comes in, like, why didn't you do this report? Your body reacts like if a tiger's attacking you. Yeah. And you create a stressful, uh, anxious response that does not correla correlate to what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Hundred percent. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, this dealing with the, this anxiety and loneliness epidemic. I think it's like it's like almost like the new opioid crisis. It's, like yeah. it's a new, uh, like almost like the war on drugs are happening, right? Mm. The idea of like we need to create more resources to bind people together, to create commonalities, to create these challenges. Um, I mean, if you look at like some of the kids in the newer generation, they're so under challenged because mm. they're coddled. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at like uh, counselors, what they're told to do is like the kids feeling anxious or depressed or whatever. It's like you know, like let's lighten their load. Let's give them less to do, like, you know, calm down, tell the parents, like, you know, stop writing them and all this. But in reality, what, like, uh, like a, a teenager's mind is, is wired for challenges. Yep. They're looking for that. Like young men who are like in their teenage years, 100 years ago, were being sent off to war, mm -hmm. right? And it's been like that historically. Um, and because of the lack of challenge and lack of that social structures to get um, accolades, has led to this, mm -hmm. and it's worsening. I mean, mm -hmm. now we give ninth place trophies, mm -hmm. you know, twelfth place achievement awards. Um, like we're giving more of these uh, reward structures, but it lessens impact. Yep. And um, I think one of the things that you're talking about is creating that kind of movement to bind people together towards. What it is is trying to bind people together towards one commonality. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
And uh, one of the things I like what you've been, uh, you, the way you've been talking is that you don't provide that commonality. You uh, you provide the, the the kind of kind of a platform or kind of like the ability of people to come together yep. and create their own commonality. Yep. Uh, and we need more of that. So uh, okay, a bunch of things crossed my mind. Okay, but one of the things about that is um, so. As I mentioned, we started this off in Mississauga, Jelly Social. Jelly, uh, Mississauga is purely suburban. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what we saw in this suburban environment mm -hmm. is just people walking around, they're going about their daily lives almost like they're in this isolated bubble. Right? Mm -hmm. And they don't want to get outside of that bubble because it's unsafe outside of that bubble. It's scary outside of that bubble. They're insecure of their abilities outside of that bubble. So they remain very tightly uh, bound within this bubble. And um, everybody in the, in the suburban area we found over there, Mississauga, Brampton, Oakville, whatever, they're all operating uh, with that mentality, with that way of going about life. And um, you can have millions of people, which there are in the West End, uh, millions of people around you, but you're not actually connecting with anyone because mm -hmm. everyone is still so stuck within their bubble. And as a result, you get these feelings of social isolation. In the midst of a sea of millions of people, you are feeling socially isolated. And, uh, and so really what we saw with Jelly Social was that um, there's an opportunity to at least psychologically have these people step outside the, those bubbles. Jelly Social, again, it pops up anywhere. It's, it's really mobile. Anywhere we pop up is a time and a space where anyone that walks in there, we are holding them by the hand and allowing them to step outside of their bubble. Because when they're in Jelly Social, you're, they're interacting with everybody else who is also similarly outside of that bubble. And they're able to authentically connect more and more. So it's almost like a psychological hack, to be totally honest with you. There's nothing really high tech about this. It's just that when we say, okay, jelly social, time and a space to, to be authentic, to be yourself, to step outside your bubble, people just naturally do that anyway. They just need to have that reason to do it. So that's one of the things that we found. And uh, the other interesting thing was that as part of this social experiment, initially we thought it would be really hard to get people outside of those bubbles. But we found that it's actually ridiculously easy. Yeah. People, people actually want to step outside of those bubbles, they just don't know how. Yeah. And so we just spend our time doing that, holding people by the hand and allowing them to step outside of their bubble. And somehow there's a value for that, especially in these suburban communities. Then when we, when we uh, thought, okay, is this just a suburban concept? Like, is this, is this something that only works out here? And that's why as part of our experiment, we thought, okay, let's see if it, if it also works in Toronto. So we started holding events like downtown Toronto. And the interesting thing is that it worked uh, just as well in downtown Toronto as well. So it's not just a suburban issue. It's almost like this entire cultural North American issue. And all people want is that reason to step outside that bubble. So, and I think there's a few things that we've, what we've mm -hmm. understood is that there's a few things that really help that process unfurl a bit better. And that is having that commonality. Like have a common goal and know that everyone in this room is striving towards a, a similar common goal. And that really uh, accelerates the process of being authentic, stepping outside that bubble and truly interacting with other people in the community. Mm -hmm. um, I was on a call one time, and this is, this is a, maybe a bit of a separate point, something worry. you were yeah. talking about before. Um, I was on a call with somebody. Mm. So um, some of the work I do on the side is uh, I do strategic development for um, uh, nonprofit agencies, government agencies as okay. a consultant. Yeah. And I was working with uh, a nonprofit, and uh, we, were on a, we were on a conference call with an um, organization I had a contract with and uh, some other organization that they were uh, looking to establish a partnership with. We had a conference call. I didn't know who was on the call per, per se, but I know there were some new people um, uh, from the other organization that were on that call. And um, you know, we're, we're having a call, we're talking, and somehow uh, the conversation shifts away from work mm -hmm. and more towards, uh, oh, you know, I'm stressed about this and this happened, oh, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. It, it became like this whole, like, um, I don't know, there's this whole conversation about, about our stressors. And then somebody um, on, the, on the line, someone from the other organization, he just uh, peeked up and he said, he's like, um, you know, if you don't mind me asking, um, you know, I've, I've been on quite a few of these meetings, quite a few of these calls. And um, I, I'm, I always hear people talking about uh, how stressed they are in Canada. 
And I don't understand why people are so stressed out. It's like, I just came from Syria. I, and I, I landed here, and these guys gave me a job. And I'm so thankful that there aren't bullets flying over my head or bombs flying over my head or whatever it may be. And I'm so blessed and happy to be here. Mm. What are you all so stressed out about? And nobody had an answer, right? Jeez, so that's yeah. just like uh, some of the things that, you know, when, when we're all talking about stressors, it's almost like this expectation that we're supposed to talk about stress. We're supposed to be stressed or there's something wrong with us. But when we hear someone like that with this absolutely fresh perspective, uh, to kind of remind us that, hey, you know what? We have everything. We don't necessarily need to be as stressed as we are. You know what it is. Um, and, and we just need to be more cognizant of that. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like that quote, right? Like the yeah. pessimist and the optimist are arguing if the glass is half full or half empty. And yeah. the realist comes in and drinks it. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. The guy from Syria came in. like, this is the reality. What do you mean? Yeah. Right? Like, we can operate. And I think that comes back to, like, one of the thoughts that triggered from what you were saying, what, what you're trying to create here is like talking about social experiments. Have you heard of uh, Rat Park, a social no. experiment? So it was done, uh, I think, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, it was part of an experiment into mental health and addiction. Yeah. What addiction is and why it is happening. And it's still like rated today as like the number one thought, thought, um, yeah, thought and research yeah. uh, behind like what it causes addiction and mental health, not mental health, but addiction. Yeah. And Rat Park pretty much came out with ideas like you put in a, ra a rat in like a cage by itself, and you give it uh, access to water laced with uh, cocaine, mm -hmm. right? And you press a lever, and uh, it gets delivered to them. Well, that rat is gonna go and drink as much cocaine, like uh, cocaine water, as possible. Yeah. And soon it gets very addicted. Yeah. And that's all it does, and it stops eating. Yeah. And it and it perishes. Yep. And and you're like, okay, this is like the, this is mental health, like the. You put in a addictive sub a substance, yep. and the patient gets addicted to it. Yep. But the counter was Rat Park. Yeah. Rat Park was literally uh, wasn't a cage; it was more of a playground, literally a paradise for rats. Mm -hmm. They have their entire family, multiple rats, right there for body heat to have contact with, uh, have so as much sex as they yeah. want, access to food, water, all the resources, playment, ability to move around, free movement, not just a confined cage. Yeah. And same thing access to water with laser cocaine. Yep. No one got addicted. Yep. yep. None of those rats got addicted. They'll yep. come and take it here and there, right? But there was no, uh, no pattern of uh, addiction. And, and it's basically because they had a support system. Yeah. And that th uh, level of thinking was applied now to humans where that could be talked about. We've created these artificial in uh, environments. Like this idea of a suburb was created in America and it had to sell cars. Mm -hmm. right? Like Scarborough, Minnesota was built by American architects yeah. who came here and develop in these artificial environments where you had to go to the grocery store, you had to drive there. Yep. You know, you had to go. You want to go to this place, you had to drive there. You want to go see friends and family, you had to drive there. Um, and it's uh, it's very cookie cutter, but it's it's made literally to sell vehicles. Yeah. People who live there have to buy vehicles to create an economy around it. And things that kind of thinking, that kind of industrial thinking that came out of like the, you know, the like the twentieth century capitalism was you know, how do we sell products and services and how do you guide people's behavior yeah. in able to make them into consumers? Yep. And that has divided up people in a, div in a, in a, in a crazy way. Yep. It made them individualistic, it's, it made them self-centered and cut off. Mm -hmm. um, There's a great experiment between um, uh, North American, European and Asian, uh, and Asian peoples, like mm. how the filter bubbles, the idea of, of uh, personal uh, space bubbles, right? Yeah. How uh, how close can you get to a person before the other person thinks uh, mm. feels uncomfortable? Yeah, and it directly correlates. Re uh, sorry, um, co uh, correlates to correlates to where you grew up. Yeah, what environment? What culture? Yeah, in North America, the filter bubble within after three feet, people get very uncomfortable when yeah. you're close to them if they don't yeah. know you if you're a stranger or, or not close. Europe, Europe, you can go up to one feet. Mm. Asian countries, you can go face to face. Yeah, people are completely fine with that. Mm. And uh, it, the idea of like, you know, how, what the response is to a stranger coming into space. And it's literally about how you are brought up and, and, uh, and nurtured. Yeah. Where like European and, now and Eastern uh, cultures, where kids are more have more physical contact with their yeah. parents, more coddled, have yeah. a larger uh, social set where, uh, circle to hang out with, more uncles, more aunts, more, higher, more family structures. Yep. And because of that, there's a higher nurturing environment. Yep. They're more nurturable. Yeah, yeah, right? that's right. And the level of the filter bubble directly correlates to the, the, the amount of uh, criminals and amount of 
of, of violent individuals in a society. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So we talk about how, like, you know, North America is an epidemic yeah. of these violent outbursts yeah. among teen as and as adolescents, right? Yeah. And uh, this comes into mind. Yeah. That the environments we've constructed have, have been made to break down the soul yeah. of the person, yeah. right? The, connect uh, the connection they feel to people, that these substances become a recourse. Yeah. And you know what? That I there is recourse, you know, because that's what the, the uh, what's it, um, uh, the, the medical uh, and the pharmaceutical industry yeah. thrives on. Yep. Is selling those psychoactive compo uh, the medicines like, oh, you feel sad, depressed? Here's a pill for that. Here's a magic pill. Yeah. Here's a pill for <laughs> that, right? So humans have still become, like in North America especially, commoditized. Yeah. And my hope is that with technology, 21st century capitalism turns that away. Yeah. Where humans become co-producers, right? Like I see the future of work becoming where um, more, there's more entrepreneurs, more creators, uh, and less workers, yep. less consumers. Yep. So the idea of pro-consumers, people who create and consume at the same time, right? That, that's a more empowered citizenry yep. because they're part of the creative class, right? Yep. Whereas before, these corporations were <laughs> these giant mechanisms you fit within. Now everyone's kind of empowered to, uh, I guess, innovate and make things happen at the same similar levels. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think, um, like, personally, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's another layer to that, and I absolutely love that, to be able to consume and create at the same mm -hmm. time. But I also think that um, um, what, we, what we classify as success, I think, needs to evolve as well. Uh, I think uh, a lot of times success is defined by um, are you in the red or in the black? You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, that mentality, I think, needs to evolve more because I think as humans, we have uh, also evolved more. Uh, we're not necessarily, um, our happiness can't necessarily be, uh, be summed up by a dollar amount or whatever it may be. And I think that having a fuller basket of what we deem to be success will allow for having more intricacies, I guess, built into our daily life and we can hit on more things that we determine as our own success. Mm -hmm. Another thing I just want to mention really quickly too, just kind of something you were, you were talking about before, um, it just in terms of the separation, right? That, that whole thing. Um, I was reading a, just a, a quick thing about uh, Mississauga's uh, history and uh, how Mississauga was, of course, like most of Canada, it was um, a colony, a specific colony for, uh, for, for a group of uh, First Nations people. And they were mainly congregating around the, the Credit River, uh, Port Credit area, whatever it may be. And um, um, there were a whole bunch of tribes in that particular area. And uh, they all used to share the resources that were mm -hmm. there. They would share access to the waterways. They would share the fish that were in there. They would share the land. They would share the crops. Because to them, they were thinking that, you know, we can't own nature. We can't own trees. That we can't own the birds. We can't own anything here. But we can share it together. And we can thrive together in that, in that sharing mentality. And that's how they thrived for many years. But then once the, uh, the colonists came, and it was British colonists in, in Mississauga particularly, um, what they would do is they would come in there, talk to the, the tribal leaders, and, uh, and put together these, uh, these really vague uh, bullshit treaties where they would say like, hey, you know what? Um, uh, we would like to have ownership in this land and um, allow us to use this land with you. But uh, we're not going to put any numbers or anything on this treaty. We'll just say, you know, we'll share the land for as far as the river reaches or uh, up to where that hill is over there or where that mountain is, whatever it may be. And, uh, and the, the First Nations people would sign these treaties thinking that uh, these Europeans want to come in here and share the land like, the, like, like, uh, like we've been sharing it. And they're like, hey, you know, yeah, there's more plenty to go around. Come and share it. So they would sign these treaties without... Uh, this, this knowledge of ownership as, uh, as the Europeans um, uh, defined ownership. Mm -hmm. So as soon as this, these treaties were signed, the next day, walls are being built up. Fences that were blocking off large chunk, uh, plots of land that, uh, that these colonists uh, were kind of claiming for themselves. And uh, again, the First Nations didn't understand what this whole thing was. So they, they routinely climb over the walls just to get access to you know, the crops and the, and the fish and the waterways like they were before. And they would get shot at, right? And uh, they'd, they'd kind of scurry back over the walls. Um, to them, again, this, this concept of the wall is completely foreign to them. This division, this separation, 
they don't know what that means. They didn't know what that, that meant back then. Okay, okay. They just thought, okay, this is shared land. What is this thing? <laughs> Let's, you know, th this probably doesn't mean anything. Let's continue to share the land. But uh, the way that the, the British were enforcing it, or the colonizers were enforcing it, was that they were sectioning off land. They were creating separation between what they wanted themselves and what was left over for the First Nations. Mm -hmm. And this concept of building walls is what has really proliferated throughout our North American history. Because this concept of the wall is what separated Europeans from First Nations. It's what separated Europeans from other Europeans. And uh, that's how uh, our commerce and uh, our economy has grown with that concept of the wall. It's just now what happens is that uh, those walls have evolved even further and they're no longer physical walls, but they're now walls that have been built into our own psyche, our own mentality, uh, our own psychology. They are basically separating our true self from our, you know, the, the self that needs to exist in this wall, in this world of separation, in this, in this separated mm -hmm. North American society. So, what I like to say is that, um, you know, the, really what the colonizers have brought over here, and really the weapon of mass destruction that we're seeing in all kinds of forms, is really this concept of the wall. As soon as you implement a wall, whether physical or psychological, us against them. It, yeah, you're creating this fear mentality, this insecure mentality, this us against them mentality, and I think. Uh, from that standpoint, we can't, we can't unify in a way that's going to create that vision, like you're saying, as a co-producer, as a co-creator, uh, and create a way that's, that's going to be a, a, a unifying mechanism across uh, North America without understanding that it's these walls that separate It's us. really, uh, it's really uh, interesting you bring up the, the um, First Nations communities, yeah. right? So one of the things I'm really interested in is about is history. Yeah. Uh, and it will attest to the fact that I won't shut up about it. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that really astounds me is like how wrong the colonized the colonized yeah. history is. Yeah. So one of the research that has been coming up now that's counter to the established um, narrative yeah. is that um, exactly how First Nations uh, tribes and peoples existed yeah. Yeah. Uh, prior to European yes. uh, involvement. Yeah. So the first like uh, the, the first interaction, the first journals from the uh, explorers interacted, right, from Cortez to um, even Columbus, yeah. right, Lewis and Clark were the first people to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific, okay. right, they had these kind of journals um, where they described the, pop the popul the civilization that they saw here, that's what they called it. Yeah. They didn't see people who lived with the land, they saw industrialized people. So it was estimated that prior to the Europeans coming in and forced and colonizing the land, 15th century. A hundred years before that, right? I think uh, the year was 14 something when Columbus first came um, and landed here. There was over 300 million pe a million uh, pe people living in, in the in the tribes of and uh, sorry in the First Nations yeah. in North America, yeah. which is comparable to today's numbers. Mm -hmm. And because the first explorers brought in the European diseases, yeah. right? The main thing that Europeans had difference was uh, between uh, difference in the cultures. You would describe the wall, but it was uh, farm animals, yeah. right? So Europeans had this thing where majority of people in all across Europe, Middle East, uh, in Asia, were, had farm animals where a lot of the, uh, the, homes, like the, the homes were built on top of actually, originally on top of the farms, mm -hmm. on top of livestock, or people lived within the livestock, lived in pig pens to yeah. keep a warmth. Yeah. Right. For warmth and subsidence, so these animals will like get all these diseases spread to humanity and bubonic plagues. All these plagues happened, but since Europe and Asia and Africa are all somewhat connected, these plagues spread from places to places. Yeah. People died but got immunity over time. When they came here, all these diseases that people are immune to just spread like wildfire. Yeah, that's right. It's estimated about seventy to ninety percent of the peoples died. Yeah. So literally between the first journals to when colon, uh, the first colonists arrived, they come here and they're like, what was these journals talking about? Yeah. None of people exist. It must have been stories. Yeah, yeah. When um, the first explorers, I forgot the name, went, uh, went down the Amazon River, yeah. right? They left a journal behind that is still readable now. What they described was hundreds and of thousands of people living within the forest yep. where people lived in the forest walked out and they can get food uh, from like mm. the, the, the trees growing from them. How the river snaked in a way, they created these banks, natural fish, fish traps, yeah. so they don't have to fish. Yeah. The fish just pulled in there and they just took, the, took them out and farmed as needed. 
people lived a life of mostly leisure, yeah. right? Uh, an industrialized society that used, that sculpted the land to work for itself. Yeah. For example, in North America, what they would do is, just like Europeans, uh, European style is you know, raising their land and creating like farms, yeah. with artificial grounds that they raise one particular thing uh, in bulk. What uh, First Nations did was like, they'll have acres and acres of land, they'll, create, they'll actually create fences, yeah. and they'll kill, they'll kill off most of the pred predators and allow in different pens, in huge acre, multi-acre -acre pens, yeah. the deer or elk or whatever population um, to thrive in. Mm -hmm. And every season they'll go and hunt from one area, mm -hmm. then let deplete that solution and then let go to the other one. Yeah. And they sculpted the land, so these, these nations, these, these things like pretty much lived off the land. Yeah. The, the actual forest fed them and gave them capabilities. So yeah. in each pen, like, the, the, the population goes up yeah. and they'll just go and farm these populations. Yep. Right, and to uh, to uh, to get the substance they needed. It's interesting. Yeah. Right, and so they sculpted the land around them to function as the industry of today. Yeah. Rather than creating the artificial environment yeah. that the European model was. Yeah. Yeah. And the way the European model won out was one, the influx of all these diseases. Imagine yeah. seventy percent of society died. That's a doomsday scenario. Yeah. Uh, that we know we have apocalypse movies about that. Yeah. So one in, in like ten people survive. Nine out of ten people die out in the generation. Yep. Imagine the generational knowledge gap, like you know, the, what happens when the infrastructure dies out, yep. that's what happens. Yep. So the actual Native Americans that the colonists uh, actually described, yep. you know, in like the 16th, 17th century, were the descendants of this, like, you know, of those people who survived yeah. this massive uh, 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 scenario. Yeah. Right? But like the cool thing behind this research now is like we're learning how people did it. Yeah. Like, over one third of the uh, two, uh, they're saying one third to one half the Amazon, 40% of the Amazon was artificially created. Yeah. So the Amazon forest, we think of it now as a jungle and it yeah. creates all this. It's actually most of it, the trees are actually orchards, ancient yeah. orchards. Yeah. And planted by, by peoples there to produce fruit. So interesting, yeah. Right? Like yeah. the potato the, yeah. that, that revolutionized the uh, European um, farming method was, was created by Native Americans living in, in uh, South America, yep. right, the yams and all these different things to substance that can grow around them. Yeah. Right, they created this kind of soil called, like, we call it potash now, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a really bad replication of what it is, it's uh, more industrialized and it's nowhere near effective. Yeah. It's a way of creating soil, which we cannot do now, yep. that can make almost anything grow out of. You put in a bunch of fungus and mm -hmm. different bacteria, they'll break down different components, mm. create the nutrients that almost any kind of tree can live in, and if you look at the topsoil of the jungle, that's why it's so thin. So yep. when you cut these farmers cutting it down now, that's going on in Brazil, yeah. it erodes the land and suddenly becomes unfarmable. Yep. Because the actual forest has not been, been there that long. Yeah. So it's again artificial. And now that you're clear cutting these forests, you're seeing all these ancient mounds yeah. from the Native Americans. And anyway, the real reason I'm talking it's about so this yeah, yeah. is that like, by studying these ancient methods, this research is mostly ignored, by the way, because yeah. in research there's gatekeepers. Who like oh, okay? This doesn't fit our model of history because there's political reasons for it as yeah. well as private capital coming in, you know, in any acad in academic research, that this doesn't fit our model. This keeps us away. Yeah. Now with technology, we have now access to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We're yeah. seeing a lot of it on YouTube. People are publishing independently research papers. Independently, uh, ind independently, um, they're publishing it online, and we're getting access to this. And now we're seeing a different type of model yeah. of how we can live within communities, yeah, right, that we can take from, that, from those people. It's almost like, um, like the ancient, uh, there was an ancient economic theology, mm -hmm. and the economic theology was about balancing exploitation and uh, renewal, right? Yes. They had the, it looks like they struck the perfect balance. Yes. Whereas I think maybe the overriding theo economic theology today is purely exploitation without yes. that, uh, that, that balancing renewal. And I think that's something that's what's proliferating right now. Yeah. And there's only so much we can ultimately exploit mm -hmm. until we eventually realize that we have to try a different model. And it could be that we're at that tipping point right now where you know, a different model needs to work and maybe that model already exists, yeah. right? That we can take the inspiration yeah. from. Yeah. Like we're going through the fourth industrial revolution right yeah. now, right? Where uh, technology is taking over like the mental capacities of people, yeah. right? Previously, the previous industri industrial revolution brought forth like accountants and lawyers yeah. and these huge mentally capacity fields people have are now operating, right? Yeah. 
but like the now software is, is eliminating the need for that. Yeah, it's yeah. taking that away, freeing the creative capability of people. Yeah, now people who can now vision new kind of concepts, who can see problems they want to solve, who are motivated in whichever way, yeah. can now utilize the technologies to create more. Yeah, so yeah. which is one of the things I, I, I love to see. Yeah, and I, I want to create more of these kind of uh, kind of like uh, spaces where free thinking people can come together, get access to resources. Yeah. See the ease of use the ease of technology yeah. to implement new ideas, yeah. and I think it's going to be a great equal equaling yeah, of the sure. divide between people who can, you know, actually help the world yeah. and make changes uh, to a wider base yeah. of people, right? Um, and I think it's a very interesting time we're living in. It's almost like the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Um, like knowledge to me is like uh, the way I like to describe it is like if you had a spreadsheet full of numbers, yeah, yeah that's great. Like you, that's definitely a part of it. But what are you going to do with those numbers to do something that's truly like that truly put those numbers to work to do something great? And that's where wisdom comes in. And I think a lot of our society has been about accumulation of knowledge and not so much about the wisdom part of it. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying right now totally speaks to me. It's about like the whole uh, pushing ourselves to our creative boundaries yeah. and using the knowledge that's all around us and so accessible right now. And what great things can we create out of it? through our creativity, through our wisdom. Yeah, so I totally love that concept. Awesome, yeah. man. Yeah. Shinzi, man, it's been, it's been an hour. Is it? Right? <laughs> Damn. So <laughs> we were wrapping it, let's wrap this up, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's been really cool. Yeah. Uh, really glad to have you on. Right, this is West End meets East End. <laughs> East End. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sorry. Yeah. And um, so Jelly Social, you can find out more about it online, jellysocial.ca. You guys create mostly meetups in the West End, but hopefully we're looking into how we can expand this, right, more. Are uh, you talking to OPN about making, bringing out uh, their events and uh, your platform? We want to talk to you about how we can bring in the East End, yep. right? Uh, we need more spaces for people to interact, man. That's right, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, all awesome. right. Thank you. All right, thanks. Yeah. Thank you.